You are listening to Consecrated, the second in a series of sermons entitled Advent, preached in December of 2008 at Hokesson Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John Boulay. As I was trying to lay the foundations of this sermon series in December on Advent, one of the questions that kept surrounding uh, my thoughts and my study was this. Is the manger scene sufficient to preach the full gospel to someone who would hear? That's been the question I've been asking all month. Is the birth story of Christ, the nativity scene, from the shepherds to the wise men, what we normally talk about, what we normally think about, is it sufficient for someone who has not heard the full story of Christ for them to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not asking, is it sufficient for you as a believer to worship? I know it is. It certainly is. Much more trivial stories than that are sufficient for a believer to worship. So that's not the question. The question isn't, is it Is it enough to bring us to a place of worship or to an appreciation of Christ? Those of us who know the whole story, the question is, can I take someone from the outside in a conversation over coffee? Is it a sufficient strategy to say, I'll tell them the birth story, and that'll get them? That's been the question I've wrestled with, and I'm inclined to say that I don't think I'm good enough to do that. Um, I, I have to... I have to continually spill outside of the birth story. And that has made me consider, is this conversation of Advent a broader conversation that w- with which we should equip ourselves? And so that's the goal of this sermon series. The goal of this sermon series is to observe the Advent of Christ, His coming in a more holistic way, not simply at the nativity scene, but the way the Gospel writers kind of talk about the whole account. So last week, We talked about the Advent according to the the Gospel writer of Matthew, which is represented by this uh, symbol here to your right. This week we're talking about the Advent according to the Gospel writer of Mark, which is represented by uh, the baptism picture here. Is, Is the birth scene enough? That's the question. Last week we talked about what Matthew had to say. And whatever we know about Jesus, whatever we don't know about Jesus, you cannot walk away from the testimony of Matthew chapter 1 without knowing this. That Christ, Jesus Christ, was the anticipation of 2,000 years of Jewish life. Whatever else we know, if, if we don't know anything, we can read Matthew chapter 1 and come to the realization that whatever God is going to do at Advent, Whatever's going to happen at Christmas, whatever this man named Jesus Christ is going to do in the world, he is the result of two millennia of anticipation, of prophecy, of prayer, of longing, of desires for redemption of the Jewish people. He is the answer. And that is significant. Because I think when we talk about the manger scene, we need to be careful about the ways in which we talk about Christ. Because ideas like goodwill, hope, peace, love, unity, these are terms that very easily can be co-opted or hijacked into Western spirituality. So I can say goodwill and peace towards men completely thinking of what Christ means in reality, 
But if someone else hears it, they may just walk away with what they want to walk away with. Because so often, we find that our Christmas story gets synthesized into the world's Christmas story. Which makes it difficult when we turn around and say, Jesus is the only way to this hope. If we say love, goodwill, peace, good tidings is the, is the, whole, is the core of the story, then when we say that the exclusive path to salvation is through Jesus Christ and Him alone, that can be very challenging and problematic for those people who hear it. But if we tell them the reason we think that, or at least part of the reason, as we work through the Gospels, we're going to have more than one. We're going to have four reasons. But one of the reasons we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way is because God invested thousands of years of preparation into this person. And for us to just let that go and think of Western spirituality as sufficient is to ignore the divine attention that God has given. How can God give that much attention to Jesus and we can just say, he's good, but he's not necessary? That's difficult. It's difficult for me as a believer. I think it should be difficult for all of us. So that's Matthew. 2,000 years of anticipation. This morning, we'll be looking at the Gospel of Mark. Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and our minds. Soften our spirits. Father, we pray that you would be with the, the spoken word. Lord, we pray you would come upon our family members who do not know you. Lord, we pray your spirit on our neighbors and our loved ones who have no care for you. Lord, we pray for the lost. Father, that you might find them and draw them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we'll read the first eight verses. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We'll be, uh, this morning we'll spend our time in the first 11, but I'm just going to uh, start here in the first eight verses, but I'll begin in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message, After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's how Mark chooses to tell the beginning of his gospel. Did you notice that, by the way, in verse 1? This, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. For him, the beginning of the story starts when Jesus is 30 years old. He didn't start at the manger. He started the beginning of the story for Mark was the baptism of Jesus 
Christ. I find that interesting. I don't think he's alone in that. He certainly isn't as far as gospel writers. Two gospels begin their narratives with the baptism account. Three gospels begin their narratives by introducing John the Baptist. And all four gospels deal with the baptism of Christ. And so if we're going to think holistically about the advent of Christ, what the arrival of this notable person, thing, or event is, it is difficult for us to really grasp that if we haven't passed through the baptism event. Certainly, if we are going to speak to somebody at Christmas, it's worth us studying how Mark starts his story here in the baptism. And this is how he starts it. First, he quotes prophetic scripture from the Old Testament about a messenger who is going to come and herald the king. That's the first thing he does. And the second thing he does is he introduces you to this messenger. He quotes Isaiah. He actually quotes two passages we'll look at in a second. Malachi and Isaiah. After he quotes it, he says, and so John came, who is this messenger, is essentially what he's saying. In the scriptures that he's quoting, he, he says he's quoting Isaiah. He actually uses Malachi 3, verse 1, to, to, to lean into it. So verse 2 is essentially Malachi, and this is what Malachi says. And it's worth us noting the whole verse, so that you can understand the anticipation of the Hebrews at this time. This is what's written in Malachi. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. That was the prophecy. That is the prophecy of the second to last chapter of the entire Old Testament. I will send my messenger and he will herald the Lord who will enter the temple. That's how Mark starts this quotation. And then he picks up in Isaiah 40. But this is what the first three verses of Isaiah say. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. The scriptures that Mark uses reflect that John the Baptist is calling in, is preparing the way for the Savior of the world. And certainly if we're going to talk about the Christ at Christmas, Savior of the world should show up somewhere. He's more than just a child. Some other things you might notice about uh, uh, John the Baptist as you look here is he's dressed in the camel fur. He has a leather belt around his waist. In every way, he resembles the description of Elijah from the Old Testament. So the prophet Elijah, dressed in camel furs, had a leather belt around his waist, ate off the land like the baptizer does. The baptizer eats locusts and honey just like Elijah did. So these are all ways that John the Baptist's life are hearkening to the fact that he has answered prophecy that has been anticipated. In fact, Malachi chapter 4, the very last verses of the entire Old Testament speak this of the messenger. The Lord writes, And I will send my messenger, Elijah, and he will prepare the way. And so John the Baptist is Elijah. He denies it, by the way, in the Gospel of John. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus says he's wrong, he is Elijah. 
He just doesn't know it. But he's Elijah. Some of the things you might notice if you look at the account of, of John the Baptist is that he does something called baptize. That's how he gets his last name or his pen name. He's also fabulously popular. Did you see that? People from all over the Judean countryside and all in Jerusalem went out to see him and confessing their sins, they were baptized. How cool would it be to be a church that is so unbelievably popular for people to come and be baptized into Christ? We ought to, we ought to pause to wonder, what is John the Baptist doing that would bring so many people to receive baptism. And we will in a second talk about the baptism of Christ, but on our way there, I want us to spend some time looking at the baptizer and the way he approaches it, because the whole goal of this month is that we would seek to speak in a way that would give people hope and bring them to baptizing faith. So what does John do? I think he does three things. The first thing he does is in every way of his life, he is set apart for the Lord. And by the way, I, I, I wasn't going to tell you this, this whole part of the sermon, but I've been so beat up by conviction that I have to share it with you, share the load. So the first thing we see from John the Baptist is that he is set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ. The way he dresses, the way he lives, he lives in the wilderness, in the desert, right by the Dead Sea, so there's barren, he lives off of minimal, minimal things, locust and wild honey. What do you think that would do to people who heard his message? They would come, and what, for whatever John the Baptist is going to say, nobody would be mistaken that John the Baptist is sold out for the message. He's devoted and he's committed to the Lord. It would be undeniable. He's either crazy or he's devoted. Or he's crazy and devoted. But he's devoted to the Lord. That's what we see. He's totally set apart. He's not doing this for money. He's not doing this for material gain. He's not doing this to gain office. He's doing it because he's devoted to God. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that he is humble in his message. So John the baptizer preaches. What does he say? He doesn't say, uh, this is what I've come to. This is what I've derived. He says, I am nothing but a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the highway for our God. The one who comes after me is so far superior to me that I am not worthy to untie the laces of his sandal. That's what he says. In the Gospel of John, when, he, when his apostles come to him and say, the, the apostles of John the Baptist, they come to him and say, Jesus is getting more support than you are now. John the Baptist sits back and says, I must decrease so that he might increase. John the Baptist thinks of nothing but Christ. Nothing but Christ. When Christ goes to be baptized, the gospel writer in John says that the John the Baptist says, Jesus, I ought not be baptizing you. You ought to be baptizing me. There's nothing in the life of John the Baptist that is not humble and that does not point to the Lord. And that's why I think people scramble to come and hear him speak. And that's where I feel convicted. I believe if the church, if the believers of the church, if I and you were more set apart, if we were more humble in our message, people would come to hear the message. I believe that if you and I cared nothing but to show our devotion to the Lord, and I'm not saying if we put on camel fur, 
and put on a leather belt and ate locusts and honey, because I'm not doing that. But if we display to the world around us that we cared for nothing but for Christ, if we display to the world around us by the way we lived, by the things with which we abstained, by the things that we partook in, if we said we are solely the vehicle by which God will be glorified, I think people would come and I think they would listen. I think if people saw that we were humble in our message, if every time something good happened to us and we pointed to Jesus and said, it is by the hand of God that I have been blessed. If in our hard times we pointed to Jesus and it said, it is by the hand of God that I am being sustained. If we did that faithfully, I think people would come. And I think they would listen. Because the message that the baptizer has is not a fun message. They don't show up to hear this man and he doesn't say, blessings on the people. They don't come to hear him and he doesn't say, the Lord will bless you and and make you prosperous. They come into the wilderness to hear him speak and he says, repent from your sins, O wicked generation. That is his message. That's all he ever says. Repent from your sins. You are wicked. Sin is the problem. John the Baptist says, I am the herald of the Almighty God, and the message I bring is that you need to get your soul right with the Lord because he's coming. And when we repent, repentance is a sign that there is mercy to be found. We, I have no reason to repent to a merciless God. I repent because I know he will hear and will show me mercy. And that's the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is saying, The Savior is coming. And he sent me to tell you, prepare your souls for his arrival. Repent and prepare. I think if we were set apart, I think if we were humble, and I think if we faithfully preach that, we would be baptizing like he was. So that's how to speak it. Let's look at the baptism for a moment. Our remaining time. Verses 9 to 11, because we're going to approach a problem. If you've been thinking critically, you might already be devising this problem in your mind, which is this. Let me read 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, if John the Baptist is baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, the problem then is, what is Jesus doing getting baptized? Certainly some of you have had to ask that. I hope I'm not alone. It seems to be a bit of a theological sticky ground. What is, what is the baptism for Jesus if it's a baptism for the repentance of sins? Now, there's a number of things that the baptism is. I'm going to talk about them very briefly. But before I do, I want to suggest to you, and this is a way of looking at almost all of Jesus' ministry, that there are many times where Jesus participates in religious rituals and religious rites and, and Jewish belief systems that deal with sin even though he has no sin. He was a good Jew. He did what Jews ought to do even though the very things that they were doing were unnecessary for a person like him. Here's an example. 
when it was a season like the Feast of Tabernacles, it's time to go to the temple and to make sacrifice. Jesus went to the temple. Jesus went to the temple and did what he was supposed to do, not because he needed to. Certainly Jesus doesn't need to go to the temple to be with God. He is God. Certainly he doesn't need to go to the temple to say hi to his father. He doesn't need any of that. But he did it anyway. So the the baptism is not unique. Here's another example. The Passover meal, which was celebrated and is in large part revolves around the issue of sin and of purifying oneself, Jesus faithfully participated in. He did it, right? The Last Supper was a Passover meal. And so what we see is there's a number of examples, and there's more than just that, of places where Jesus has engaged in rituals that deal with sin, even though he himself has no sin. But here's what's what's significant, and here's what we should walk away with. In each case that Jesus does this, he displays his supremacy over the ritual or over the act. He shows his lordship over the rite with which he's participating. So at the, at, at the Passover meal before his crucifixion, they're breaking the bread and they're passing around the drink, but what does the Lord do? He breaks the bread and he says this, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he passes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which I give to you. As often as you eat this meal, do so in remembrance of me. Do you see what the Lord just did there? The Lord took the ritual, participated in it, but took lordship over it. Jesus said, I am now the reason you do this. I am Lord over the Passover. The same thing happens at the temple. Jesus walks in the temple like a good Hebrew should. But what does he do? He kicks over tables. He yells at priests. He starts fights. He says, my father's house is a house of prayer. And then he says things like this. If you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. Do you see what Jesus just did? Jesus walks into the temple and takes lordship over the temple. He says, everything here is represented by me. I am lord over the temple. That's what he does. He spoke with authority. He did what he wanted to do. So how ought we approach baptism? Should we expect to see some expression of lordship over baptism at Christ's baptism? I certainly think we do. He goes in the water, and when he comes out of the water, what happens? The Lord shows up and the Spirit descends and the Almighty God himself says, this is my Son, no, you are my Son, whom I love, and you I am well pleased. Jesus Christ took baptism and became Lord over baptism. And that's encouraging to us that we don't worship a Christ who went through the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We worship a Christ who endured baptism to become Lord over baptism. He is supreme in baptism. Now, in our Baptist faith, we do not believe that baptism is a converting rite. We do not believe that there is forgiveness of sins found in baptism. We believe it is representative. It's confessional in nature to the body of Christ. It professes our faith. It is symbolic of the work that the Spirit has already done in our lives. But this is significant because the early church, who certainly found salvation in baptism... I don't mean the early, early, but like two, 300 A.D. They were dealing with the baptism of Christ, figuring out what was going on. And this is, I think they have the wrong answer, but I think they have the right heart. They said this. They said, when Jesus Christ was baptized in the Jordan, he infused his righteousness into the water that forever purifies the Christian. 
And I say, eh. It's not right. But that's the right heart about it. We should see that when Christ enters the water, he takes lordship over this baptism and says, this confessing of our sins, this profession of faith, it shows true salvation that cannot be found anywhere else but in me. I am Lord of baptism. There are some other symbols and meanings that come out of baptism. I mentioned them very quickly in passing because I want us to move towards this idea that baptism is this consecration of Christ. But the first thing we see is that the baptism serves as a commissioning ceremony for Christ's ministry. It's time for Christ to move into the world and begin his work. The baptism commissions him. Right after that, he flees into the, the wilderness, is tempted, and then he gets into his ministry. So the baptism serves as a commissioning. The baptism also serves as a cleansing like over a priest. When the priests were ordained in the Levitical rite, they went to the temple and they were washed to show that they were suitable priests for the Lord. And I believe this is also serves as an ordination of our Christ. Another symbol that comes in here is that he is anointed like a king. In the old day, during the kings, a prophet would be sent by the Lord to a king and he would pour water on him and anoint his royal throne. How fitting is it that God calls a prophet and then God calls the king and brings them together and the king anoints Jesus. And so we find here is at this moment of baptism where Christ is taking lordship over it, we find that he is commissioned, he's ordained, and he's anointed as our priest, as our king, and as our savior. That's what's happening if you want to talk about the advent. The advent of Christ revolves around this problem of sin. And the advent of Christ revolves around somebody who is Lord over sin coming into our lives. I'll close with this thought. During the medieval period as Advent started to arise in the tradition of the church, it looked in every way like Lent. For those of you who grew up in a liturgical tradition and you know Lent, Advent was Lent. They had the fasts like you did in Lent. You had the time of prayers like you did during Lent. Why? Because it was a time of preparation for the coming Lord. In fact, in the Latin Bible, in the Vulgate, the word Adventus occurs as much to refer to Christ's second coming as it does to his first. And so when they talked about Advent, they were thinking not only of Christ's original coming to earth, but the fact that that hearkens to the fact that he is coming again. In other words, that we as his disciples ought to be saying to the world, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand because the Lord is coming and there is mercy to be found. And I would encourage you this season that if you are trying to find meaning in Advent, to serve it as a season of preparation. To fast through it. To pray through it. To put your spirit right with the Lord. Because He is coming again. And in Him, there is mercy. Amen. Amen.